morning. It's great to have so many guests and visitors here with us today. We see the, the Jansen clans taking up that half of the church. Welcome here. Great to have you with us. Uh, Peter's family we see as visitors as well, and there might be others that I'm missing, but it's great to have you here with us this morning. We are not uh, uh, quite to school yet. We're not quite uh, done summer yet. We're sort of in the limbo period right in between, and yet uh, we're all here this morning to hear God's word, and I'm excited to share with you what God has laid on my heart. Today we are continuing in our series entitled Prepared to Give an Answer, in which we have been studying the field of apologetics, which is the term used to describe giving reasons for our faith, or making a defense of the faith. Our theme verse for this series has been 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which instructs us, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In part one of our series, we learn that the use of apologetics is intended to help us remove barriers to people placing faith in God. In doing this, we have to remember that we cannot argue someone into placing faith in God. For though it appears to be an intellectual battle, it's actually a spiritual battle. And so even as we equip ourselves through study, we must also depend upon the Holy Spirit to work and to speak through us. And this is something that has become so real to me, is the the influence and the working of the Holy Spirit as we engage non-believing people. That it's not just about having the right answers memorized, it's about allowing the Spirit to work in that, that conversation, to work through us, and to give insight into not just what to say, but how to say it. And this has been something that I've really relied on this past week, not this week, but the week previous at Bible Camp, I was saying that I had about a year's worth of counseling sessions all jam-packed into one week. There were times where after a chapel I would meet seven or eight kids in sequence until about midnight, and it was just, uh, it was a lot, but the Holy Spirit was working and giving me wisdom, and, and hopefully the things that I shared will have planted a seed or made some impact. And so let's remember, we need the Holy Spirit even as we equip ourselves. And just to remind you, the, the purpose for this series is to do two things. It's to equip you so that you can engage. And secondly, for those of you who are genuinely puzzling about questions like these, to provide an answer. So in part two, we also asked a big question. We asked, why does God allow evil? And from Genesis chapters 1 to 3, we learn that in the beginning, God chose to create man like himself. Free thinking and free choosing. And in doing so, God decided that he would not violate man's free will, no matter what, no matter what the consequences. And so when Adam and Eve chose to exercise that free will and disobey, sin and evil and everything that we see wrong in the world around us today came as a consequence. And so when we we recognize this, we realize that the responsibility for evil in the world is not God's responsibility, it's our responsibility, it's on us. Part three, we asked the next big question. How can a loving God send someone to hell? And we learned the three-part answer. A loving judge must still hand out a fair and just verdict. Secondly, we are measured by God's standards, not our own. And thirdly, the 
loving and holy judge has provided a way for both justice to be served and for the criminal to be pardoned and set free. But again, he will not violate our free will. He will not force us. It's our choice. In our last part of this series, we asked, don't all religions lead to God? The classic uh, trail up the mountainside metaphor. And here we learned the law of non-contradiction, that two contradictory truth claims cannot be both true simultaneously. And so when Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, he was either telling the truth or he was lying. And because all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus was telling the truth, therefore, all other religions or belief systems that claim they are leading people to God, apart from Jesus Christ, simply cannot be true. For Jesus cannot just be one of many ways to the Father, as Oprah Winfrey likes to say. He is the one and only way to the Father. And apart from him, there is no way. And so now today in part five, we are going to ask the question, aren't reason and faith incompatible? Aren't reason and faith incompatible? So we're going to keep the camp theme going for a little bit longer. If you have your Bibles, I want you to pick them up. We're going to start with a word of personal application that this word is for us. So I want you to repeat after me. Got your Bible? You ready? This is my Bible. It is alive and active. And it is for me today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are alive and active, that your spirit is already here with us. And we pray now that as we enter your word, you would open our ears, open our spirits, open our minds, that we can understand, receive, and apply what you have for us today. Father, there are many other concerns that we also want to lift our hearts and our minds together in prayer to you with. We thank you, first of all, Lord, for the great work you've done at Bible camps all across this province this summer. We thank you specifically for the way that you have worked at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. We thank also of Camp Koinonia and many other camps around the area. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the harvest that was brought in, for the seeds that were sown along the way as well. And we pray, Lord, that now those decisions that were made in the weeks that are following, they will be tested. And we pray that those young lives would find connections in church church families and youth groups, that they can be nurtured and discipled to grow up in the faith. We pray that you would protect them from the evil one who is so ready to snatch that seed and to, and to choke it out. And so we pray against that, Lord. We pray as well for those from our church family who were involved in these ministries this past summer. They also go through a low in a time of testing following, and so we pray that you'd be near to them and also protect them, Lord. Thank you for the work that you did through them, and I pray that you would give them a sense of satisfaction and blessing knowing they're a part of what is most important to your heart, and that is reaching the lost with your gospel. We also thank you, Lord, for the physical harvest that's being brought in. We pray for the farmers that whatever state they are in, Lord, that you would encourage them, strengthen them, and protect them as they bring in this harvest, and we thank you for it. We also pray, Lord, for those in our church family who are ill. We think especially of those in Bayside. We pray that you'd be near to them, Lord, that even as they are in times of loneliness or times of wondering what's the point of, of sitting for so long with having so little to do, we pray that you would give them a sense of purpose, Lord, and draw near to them even now, we pray. We also continue to pray, Lord, for the many who are bereaved in our church family, who have lost loved ones and are still grieving their passing. 
And we pray, Lord, that for those who are still feeling that absence of the loved one who is no longer there, we pray that you would be a comfort and a source of strength day by day and even moment by moment. Be near to them, Lord, and help us as a church family to not forget them. We also pray, Lord, for the ongoing refugee situation, the crisis in the world today. We thank you for the great work that you've done in Zoe, Felicia, and William's life. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to have your hand upon the next family waiting to be received in this community. And we pray as well, Lord, that as homes are found for them, that you would continue to make a way for the many, many others who are still looking for a way of escape. And so we pray that you would be merciful there, Father. We thank you for the upcoming season before us as school begins, as Sunday school programs and youth programs begin. We pray that you would be, uh, have a hand of leading and guidance upon each leader, upon each teacher, and that, Lord, that in the times to come that we would build up our youth and that we would equip them, Lord, and show them the love of Jesus as we do so. And so, Father, as we come now uh, together before your word, I pray that you would Continue to speak to each one of us, and through me, your servant, I ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, and there we are going to begin looking at this story verse by verse from verses 16 and 17. Now if you're not familiar with this passage, it's an exciting passage because this is perhaps the greatest template we have in all of scripture of apologetics in action. One of the most compelling accounts. Now, some of you might wonder where in your own personal lives you would ever have the need to use apologetics in everyday conversation. Well, here's a great example for us. So let's begin looking together at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. The first thing I want to point out to you is Paul's attitude towards what he sees. Paul is in this great city of Athens, the leading city of its age as far as knowledge and intellect went, and he walks around and he sees everything that the city represents and he is distressed. He is distressed. And when you open up your eyes and you look around the world and you open up a newspaper and you you listen to the radio news headlines... You click on that website and you see what's happening in the world around us today. What is your reaction? Are you distressed by what you see happening today? Are you distressed by the immorality, the disbelief and outright hostility that we see all around us towards God, towards faith, towards Christianity? Does this distress you? The Apostle Paul was distressed We know that Jesus was distressed when he wept over Jerusalem. And we have to ask ourselves, are we distressed? Or have we become so callous to all of this, so desensitized to it, that it no longer bothers us? Are you distressed in your spirit over the state of our nation? Are you distressed over the spiritually blind right around us in our own community of Killarney? I am. And I really, really hope and pray that you are as well. Because unless we are distressed, unless we are bothered by the state of those living in darkness, we're never going to lift a finger to help them. Paul was distressed, and so this began a chain of events. Look at what he does with his distress. Look at what Paul does. He doesn't start a protest with signs and slogans saying, down with the idols. He doesn't do that. 
He also didn't petition the government to censor the idolatry that he saw. And he also didn't start blowing up the false idols or like getting oxen and knocking them over or or anything extreme like that. No, that's not what he does. Look at what he does. He translates his distress at what he sees into compassion for the people who are deceived. And then he takes action to help them. And how does he do that? The second thing we see is Paul reasons with them. Verse 17. Paul, distressed by what he saw, then verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. He reasoned with them. This is really important to recognize that Paul didn't just come in with his beliefs and hit everyone over the head. No, he engaged in dialogue. He reasoned with them. And he didn't just do it in the synagogue, though he did it there. He also did it in the marketplace. He did it on the street corners. In the rub of everyday life, he reasoned with people. Don't believe the lie that reason and faith are incompatible. Yes, of course, we must exercise faith. We must exercise faith in an unseen God in order to receive his salvation. But faith is not blind. Paul didn't just tell them about Jesus and then just say, believe. No, he gave them reasons for why they should believe. Now this next part might get a little bit complicated, so please follow along with me. The reason that Paul reasoned with them was because he had good reasons with which to reason. Did you follow along? Did you get that? In case you didn't get that, I'll simplify. Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul knew what he was talking about. He knew the good reasons for why they should believe because he was prepared. He didn't just go into this situation blindly with no equipment, with nothing prepared to say. No, he was prepared in advance. He had good reasons to give. And so all he needed was the venue the opportunity to engage with people in dialogue. And like Paul, we too can use logic and reason to point to the truth of Jesus Christ. And of course, reason alone will not cause people to place faith in Jesus. But if their first line of defense is something intellectual, some reason, some barrier that's holding them from coming to faith in God, if we don't address that barrier, they will forever remain lost and all the while convinced that they are right. And so we have to address the barriers with reason. We have to dialogue with people and find out what are the reasons, what are the barriers holding you back from faith. Thirdly, we see that Paul was culturally relevant. This means he took the time to understand his audience. You see, in order to speak in a way that they could understand, he had to understand where they were coming from, how they thought. Now, the Athenian people, they're intrigued at Paul's teaching, and so they invite him to speak at their great meeting forum called the Areopagus. Has anyone ever heard of this before? It is one of the most magnificent structures in all of the ancient Grecian world, the Areopagus. A magnificent structure with marble columnades, and this is where all of the leading thinkers of the world would come to hear, to debate, to dialogue on all of the latest intellectual pursuits and knowledge that the world had to share. And I want you to listen to how the people of Athens are described in verse 21. This is the description of those people. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing 
but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that sound at all familiar? They do nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. What are we going to do with these ideas? Eh, it doesn't matter. We just love talking about them. We just love listening to them. Does this sound at all like our world today? It does a little bit. Maybe a little bit like our universities. Well, in verses 22 to 23, listen to how Paul opens his speech to the Athenians. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Before you start a university campus ministry, follow Paul's example and take the time to look and to listen carefully. In fact, before you seek to minister in any capacity to anyone, period, take the time to look and to listen carefully. Do this in order that you can understand to whom you are speaking and speak in such a way that they can understand you. Paul sought to be culturally relevant. Before he spoke, he studied his surroundings. He looked carefully. Fourthly, Paul found common ground for a starting point. I can't stress this point enough. This is so important. Find common ground. So often, we as Christians approach evangelism by the way of just coming up to someone and just saying, you know, here's a tract, believe in Jesus, all right, check, I evangelized someone. Did you take the time to actually find out if that person was actually a Christian or not before you even gave them that tract? I know uh, someone shared with me a story that once they, they had been shared the whole plan of salvation with them, and by the end of it, the guy was feeling quite good about himself, and all the while, he hadn't bothered to find out that he was actually sharing this with a brother in Christ. So maybe take the time to listen first, ask some questions, find common ground. Paul uses common ground, and he found some even in a pagan place like Athens. Verse 23. Paul says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is genius. This is sheer genius on Paul's part. He found common ground in a place that was filled with idolatry. Incredible. I once had the opportunity to counsel a lady. And this lady was working through the grief of a friend who had passed away. She was a non-church lady, had no real religious background or, or church attendance, not a believer. But nonetheless, in her grief, she was looking for an answer. She was seeking. And so I had the opportunity to, to visit with her, and I simply asked her the question, tell me what you believe. Have you ever asked someone that? Tell me what you believe. You see, before you tell others what you believe and why they should believe it too, do them the courtesy to ask them, tell me what you believe, and, uh, and then genuinely listen to what they have to say. So I asked this lady that, and then she just opened up, and she proceeded to tell me how since she'd been a little girl, she had felt that there was some higher power out there, but she just wasn't really sure. And Yet every time she looked at the clouds floating and shifting on a peaceful sunny day, she said that she could sense that there was just something more out there, that there was something around her that she couldn't explain. 
And so then with this information, once I knew that she believed in a higher power, she just didn't have a sense of who he was or a name for him, I was then able to share with her that that higher power has a name. And that was someone that she could know personally. And this opened up a wonderful conversation about Jesus. And I was able to share with her what he'd done for her. I was also able to give her a book by Lee Strobel on the case for a creator. And now at the close of this wonderful conversation, I wish I could tell you she believed on the spot. She didn't. As far as I know, she never did. It didn't happen that way. You see, most of the time when a seed is planted, it takes time to germinate and to grow. But through finding a common starting point, a seed was planted. And so I can leave it in God's hands that it's up to him what's going to happen with the growth of that seed but I made the most of that one opportunity that I was given. And Paul, we see, is making the most of the opportunity that he is given. And so before you tell people what you believe, remember, ask them first, tell me what you believe, and then find common ground that you can agree upon as a starting point and begin from there. Finally, pardon me, fifthly, Paul points to the Creator. Paul points to the Creator. Look at what he says, these beautiful, powerful verses in verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Remember, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, there is a massive obstacle to overcome here. And this massive obstacle is this. If the person does not believe in a creator or in a deity, period, you've got some uphill sledding ahead of you, and this needs to be addressed. Of course, the great debate of our age is the argument between creation and evolution. You see, there are countless people in our culture today whose belief in evolution has become their greatest barrier against placing faith in God. So in order for you and I to be prepared to give an answer, we need to at least have a basic working knowledge of this subject. And you don't have to be a quantum physicist to be qualified to do this either. There are some very basic yet profound arguments that you can learn to address people in this area. You see, chances are high that all of you have met someone who believed that they are more intellectually enlightened than you. You in your old-fashioned, archaic notions that there's a creator God who made everything. Yeah, okay. You know, go back to your your shack in the woods. You might have have encountered someone like that. Am I the only one who's encountered someone like that? A few of you have. I see from the smiles on your faces. Now, when you meet someone who is intellectually enlightened freed from the old-fashioned and quaint notions that there's an intelligent designer who created the universe as we know it, the majority of these people will point to the so-called undisputable fact that science has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the theory of evolution is true. Therefore, there is no longer a need for a creator. There, your whole belief system is useless. But is this really true? 
Are science and belief in a creator at odds with each other? Has science disproven the need for faith in God, a creator? Is this true? There is a tale told that God was once approached by a scientist who said, Listen, God, we've decided we don't need you anymore. These days, we can clone people, we can transplant organs, and we can do all sorts of things that used to be considered miraculous. We've put you out of a job. To which God replied, Don't need me, huh? How about we put your theory to the test? Why don't we have a competition to see who can make a human being from scratch? To this, the scientist readily agreed. So God declared that they should do it like he did it way back when he first created Adam from the dust of the ground. Fine, said the scientist, and he bent down to scoop up a handful of dirt. Whoa, not so fast, said God, shaking his head in disapproval. Get your own dirt. (laughs) Get your own dirt. Get your own starting point. If we're going to create from scratch, it needs to be scratch. There is a theological term from Latin to describe how God created the universe. The term is, he created everything ex nihilo. Ex nihilo meaning out of nothing. The Bible teaches that this is how God created the universe, out of nothing, ex nihilo. Simply, there was nothing, God spoke, and suddenly, there was everything. How does that happen? Nothing, God speaks, and everything, just like that. Now, to a secular mind, this seems absurd. It seems laughable. It seems ridiculous. But take a moment to consider the alternative that they are proposing. They are proposing that there was nothing, nothing said nothing, and suddenly there was everything. Which of these two options is more believable? Which of these is more reasonable? Which of these two options would require more faith to believe? You see, creation and evolution both require faith. Now, there are many who accuse the Bible of being a made-up fairy tale. But don't most fairy tales begin with the line, a long, long time ago? And so, too, evolution begins with the statement, it is believed that approximately six billion years ago, the universe began. And this statement demands, simply from the sheer magnitude of time, that you now suspend rational thought about the impossibility of something springing from nothing by just adding enough time into the equation. Now, in stark contrast, the biblical record has dates and places and names and events and manuscripts and archaeology that all point to its accuracy. Now, this is a very basic argument on this subject. But understanding the fundamental law of nature... That something cannot spring out of nothing. Remember this. Something cannot spring out of nothing. It is a good foundation for answering people who believe that evolution has replaced the need for a creator. You see, all science is intended to do is to discover and describe how the natural world functions. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. You have no doubt heard that the majority of leading scientists of the past three and four centuries of the age of discovery, the vast majority of them were either Christians or at the very least believed in a creator God. One of the most famous of these is Sir Isaac Newton. 
The story is told that Sir Isaac Newton had a miniature replica of our solar system displayed in his office. One of those that you've seen before with the sun at the center and the planets revolving around it. And one day, another scientist entered Newton's study and exclaimed, My, what an exquisite thing this is! Who built it? Nobody, replied Newton quickly. The man said, You must think I'm a fool. Of course somebody made this, and that man is a genius. Laying aside his book, Newton arose and laid a hand on his friend's shoulder and said, This thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander system whose laws you and I both know, and I am still not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and a maker. Yet you profess to believe that the great original from which the design is taken has come into being without either designer or maker. Now tell me, by what sort of reasoning do you reach such a conclusion? And to this, the man had no reply. Newton was right. If a person can believe that someone built such a simple thing as, as a little uh, a display in an office, if someone would look at something as, as rudimentary as a doghouse and say someone had to have built it, it didn't just spontaneously spring up on its own, how much more faith does it to take to believe that when we look at the known universe, when we look at everything around us, the complexities, to say it all came about from nothing. It sprang up spontaneously on its own. Who among us hasn't looked up at the stars on a beautiful clear night and marveled? How can we not look at all of these things and conclude that there is a far greater power behind it, a far greater designer than any human being can ever fathom? The Apostle Paul wrote about this to the Romans in chapter 1 and verse 20. He wrote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so if you remember nothing else on this subject this morning, remember this. Nothing does not and cannot produce something. It cannot happen, it's never been observed to happen, and it never will happen. And so Paul points to the Creator. And from this common starting point, he then reveals to them God's heart. Look at verses 26 to 28. From one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In this beautiful and eloquent statement, Paul reveals to them God's heart. He reveals to them God's purpose for them, a heart full of love, a heart filled with a desire to be in relationship with them. He revealed that God's desire was not to remain distant. Instead, he is not far from any one of us. No matter how ignorant, hostile, or disbelieving towards him they might have been, he still declares, God is not far from you. And the same applies to each one of us. So long as there is breath in your lungs, no matter how far from God you might have strayed, 
it's never too late to put faith in him. But Paul also pointed to the reality in the next passage that the time given to decide is not unlimited and that a day of judgment is coming. Look at verses 30 to 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. A day of judgment is coming. In the worry clinic, a columnist by the name of Dr. George Crane tells of the disclosure once made by a clerk in the law office of Clarence Darrow, a famed criminal lawyer and self-acclaimed atheist. The account went like this. The clerk said, As Darrow lay dying, he hastily summoned three clergymen to his bedside, a Presbyterian minister, a Catholic priest, and a Jewish rabbi. He said to them, Gentlemen, I have written and spoken many things against God and the churches during my lifetime. Now I wish I hadn't. For now I realize it is entirely possible that I might have been wrong. So I should like to ask each of you a final favor that you would intercede for me with the Almighty. Now Darrow waited until the last moment. And I truly hope that in that last moment, he was able to understand that those three clergymen were unable to save him. I hope he realized that only Jesus could save him and that he placed his faith in him. For if he did, we know that God received him with open arms. The day is coming, but God's heart right now is that we would repent, turn to him, for he is near. And then finally we see what Paul gets to do in the aftermath of all of this. Paul welcomed new believers into God's family, and he disciples them. Verse 34, a few men believed and became followers of Paul. Now, did everyone believe? Nope, not even close. Not even close to a revival springing out. In fact, the preceding verse, pardon me, the proceeding verse says, many sneered and mocked when they heard about the resurrection. But don't miss this important fact. Some believed. Some believed. And so in your efforts, in your going out, in your sharing your faith, in dialoguing with people, not everyone is going to believe. But with the Lord's help, some will believe. So if you would ask Paul at the end of that day, was all of the effort he put in in Athens, was it worth it? You better believe it was worth it. He might not have converted the entire city, but some believed. And now maybe there's some of you listening here today who feel as though God is distant. So let me encourage you. He is nearer than you think he is. Reach out your hand and discover his hand has already been reaching out to you this entire time. Seek him and you will discover that he has already left heaven to seek and to save you. And maybe you've been running from him. Maybe you've been wandering from him. Maybe you've just been ever so slowly drifting away from him. But no matter how far you've gone, turn around and you will discover that he's been right behind you all this time. He's been close, just waiting for you to repent, to turn and enter his embrace. Find his forgiveness, receive it, and be one of his children, his offspring. 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As we close, let me recap the perfect seven points from our lesson here this morning with Paul. First, Paul was distressed by what he saw. Paul reasoned with them. Paul was culturally relevant. Paul found common ground for a starting point. Paul pointed to the Creator. Paul revealed God's heart to them. And finally, Paul welcomed the new believers into God's family and began discipling them. And I pray that as we seek to engage the world around us, we can follow Paul's template, his example, for how we seek to engage the disbelieving world around us, the skeptical world. And yet those who are still seeking for something more We have the answers. We have the truth of God's word. So may we seek to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that we have. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you that through Paul's example, we are given a template for how we too can engage a non-believing world around us. And so I pray, Lord, that as we seek to do this in our day-to-day conversations, Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom and insight into how to engage others, into how to truly listen to them and find a starting point from which we can move forward and that we can share with them your wonderful love for them and that they too could be found by you and enter into this wonderful relationship that each one of us enjoys. And so, Lord, help us to not take this for granted and give us opportunities even today and in the coming week to share your great love with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.